Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Given all that's been going on in London in the last couple of weeks, do you suppose a BMP and anti-fascist protest combined would have more attendees or would you put your money on a Bajikal protest? Answers in just a moment. London, Michaelmas term lately over. London. Okay, you know where you are. Radical transformation. Very radical transformation. Morally outraged with what's going on. I got very excited this week. Seems reasonable, doesn't it? As soon as you scratch the surface, you realise gore happened all across London. Every open square would have a a place called the Kittle Hoosey. Saw your Geordie's Grace riding on a goosey. What the hell is that? <laughs> when a man is tired of London, he's tired of so London. So what was the first thing that caught your eye? The South has an overstuffed walrus. It's, it's very important history. A handwritten letter from Charles Dickens. There's a piece of information we're missing here somewhere. You sneak through the city, you meet what, immersing yourself in the sight, sounds, And for song, the Jewish stories, community, who came over in their tens of thousands from uh, Russia, from Poland... We are doing a modern take on Morris dancing. When did he think the second coming was going to happen? Yes, uh, Boris... He wants to put an airport. <laughs> the, t- the tone with which Boris has announced that is fatigue. Yes, the city is always changing. People frequently say to me, you know, won't it be wonderful when it's finished? And I say, no, it'll be dreadful. No, it'll mean it's dead. Inform and entertain. That's what it's about. London is a modern Babylon. That's very true. Can we have some of the detail here? Well, hello, hello from Great Portland Street, where the Albany pub just tucked behind the station. It's the 14th of June, 2013. I'm N. Quentin Wolfe, and this is Londonist Out Loud, a podcast of news, views and curiosities from London, UK. Here with me, I have Lorraine Bow, who is uh, an energised ukuleleist, who has a twinkle in her eye and is ready to strum for us. We also have Sean Preston from Open Pen Magazine. He's appeared before on the show, and he's getting ready to uh, del- <laughs> deliver a lecture on London's gardens, possibly. I'm not sure. <laughs> Hello, hello, you both. Hello, how are you doing? Yeah, very good, actually. We've got a musical show today. We've also got news about homelessness and pubs and uh, other things going on in London. Where to start with the news over the last couple of weeks? Lorraine Bow. Let's talk about the pub on the M40. Pub on the M40, yes. Okay, so this is the Buckinghamshire story. It's just about a London story. It will certainly affect people coming in and out of London and uh, possibly crashing into London. What was the story here? So there, uh, JD Weatherspoons are putting a, a pub on the M40 uh, what could possibly go wrong so mixed feelings on this one because we're not allowed to uh, drink on the tube however we can pull in to the lay-by of the M40 and grab a pint so this is a traditional pub on a motorway which you can only reach by car yes that's exactly what they're doing (laughs) the argument here surely is that your, your passengers can go for a drink you don't have to go for a drink. What's what's really the problem with that? Uh, well, I'm not sure about you. How do you feel about driving a car of four people to a motorway bar so that then they can get drunk and you sit and watch? Uh, not my cup of tea. I don't, don't know about you. Well, I was just trying to think, service stations, that sort of, do any of them serve alcohol? No, there's nothing really on the motorway at the moment that currently serves alcohol, is there? I was just going over thinking, is the rest... Little, little Chef? No, they don't do alcohol either, do they? There's the odd mm. uh, service station... Uh, not service station, petrol station. Uh, but in town, central town ones in the north, which I've been to, yeah. and they 
now and again, but they usually you can walk but that's there. sort of bottled and tinned, isn't it? As opposed to going oh, in, yeah, going absolutely. in and, and getting drunk and then getting back on the motorway. Yeah. I mean, obviously, yeah, it, it is for passengers, isn't it? But it doesn't send out a, a great message, does it? If, especially when, as you say, we're looking at or, or we have done, we ban, you know, in banning alcohol from the tube and, and public transport when you're in no control whatsoever of, of the the vessel to allow Weatherspoons to have a drinking establishment on the motorway certainly is a, a, a problem. <laughs> it certainly is a problem. It's, it's, it's in contradiction of what we've done with our public transport certainly. What about if, if you had, um, and this really doesn't affect London at all because everything's in walking distance really, but if you had uh, a little village in the middle of nowhere or a pub in the middle of nowhere, um, you know, you might well be tempted to go and visit that pub using your car if you live in an outlying area. Surely this sort of stuff is, is going on, isn't it? It's going on for sure. But uh, do you want to encourage it just on the outskirts of London where there are plenty of central uh, pubs which you can visit? you know, either on the tube or on foot or by bike, leaving your bike there if you have more than one uh, drink. Let's move on. We're going to start with a big political story here, and it's one of our favourite councils. Oh, we've, we could do our jingle. Should we, have, <laughs> should we have a live version? We've got a new jingle, people. It's Westminster Council. It's Westminster, <laughs> it's Westminster Council. What is Westminster Council doing this time? Well, London's favourite council is in the news again. Uh, for This is for the hotel bill of uh, putting up families waiting for housing. Um, and that, that bill has come to three million in the last six months, which does sound like a, a huge amount. And obviously it is a huge amount. As pointed out in the article in the Londonist, it is something that encourages outrage amongst readers. But really, I mean, this whole thing could be avoided with, you know, actually having housing in the first place for these families. Uh, it's, it's astonishing that, three million pounds could be spent on this sort of thing when you think that amount of money could surely go into building new homes in the area yes why are we putting people up in hotels at all that sounds like completely we need social housing that's the that's the thing that we're lacking right across town isn't it yeah exactly i mean there are so many empty buildings in london um i know of a couple of organizations which um, provide cheaper housing such as uh, camelot properties they go into um vacant buildings and put people in those people pay 50 pounds per week if they linked in with a council surely that would be a better use of uh, public money than putting people up in top hotels just a thought yes when we say top hotels have we got any indication of the sort of place they're putting in is it, are they, they sort of uh, flea pit bnbs or something five star what's going on <laughs> how many flea pit bnbs are there in westminster i just wonder <laughs> <laughs> even if they're not top end hotels they're still going to be expensive aren't they in westminster regardless um and it's you know you look at it and you think oh these lucky people living in hotels but really i mean these are families they, they won't be in one hotel for long either they'll be moved along and it's it's not a cohesive family life either so it's very very easy to look at this and think oh these families are getting all this for you know for three million pounds of our of our tax money but but actually it's not a very good life at all i'm sure they'd much sooner have a, a convenient place that they can bring up their family stable i mean what staying in one place so that their children can go to school yeah agreed i thought you were suggesting staying in a stable there <laughs> no <It> has stability <laughs> as in giving them stability so that they can stay in one place and go to school what, what is the i mean it seems as though there's a sort of a, a policy direction away from building affordable housing. they keep saying it's affordable housing but it tends to be uh, the sort of housing that you can only afford if you're uh, you know in a relationship with somebody else who's also a full-time wage earner then you stand a chance of getting in there but in terms of social housing truly low-cost housing doesn't seem to be uh, at all on the government's agenda how do we address that situation then if at the top they're not making new houses 
that suit the needs and the pockets of the people who have to live in them. What can we do as a, as a society, as a city? Well, I mean, this sounds very bleak, but actually there's not a lot we can do now. We're, we're stuck in the, the situation that we've created for ourselves for at least the next 30 years. It would take 30 years of going in the right direction to get anywhere that was going to help anyone. Basically, since, you know, post-war, really, we've, we've, we haven't really done the right thing with housing. You know, in, in this country, it's, it's somewhat of a cultural crime to not own something or anything so obviously there's a stigma attached to to social housing but if we just provided social housing for everyone i mean even throughout the classes i'm not talking about the underclass and just the working class i'm talking about everyone if there was social housing there for ev- anyone that wanted it it wouldn't really be an issue we, that that's where we've gone wrong it's a lot it is the last 30 40 years that sounds kind of communist what you're talking about well i mean not i'm not saying that that everyone has to have social housing so in that sense it's not it's not communist but it's it's, it's probably leftist certainly but um you know i don't have an issue with ownership if people want to own that's fine my issue is with the stigma attached to not owning something and I think culturally we've done ourselves in with that it's, it's easy to blame governments but we've, we've always voted them in and we've always looked to, for ownership you know it's things like right to buy the only reason that worked is because people wanted it sadly well isn't part, part of that surely that you've got to have affordable rents if you divorce yourself from the idea of home ownership yeah. then I mean in Europe for example most people rent and it's affordable as in it's literally affordable within people's wages now they seem to say that um, provided that the rent or mortgage is is around 45% of your income, that's affordable. And I I did the inverted commas with my fingers for those people who can't see them. So I I think 45% of your income is not affordable. I just don't think, you know, having over, you know, nearly half of your wages go on your, um, just to have a roof over your head is not sustainable and likewise yeah agreed in terms of our country we're forced towards um, owning whereas if if the stigma was taken away then certainly it would be better for people to rent and perhaps if it were a bit cheaper people would be happier to rent more long term and if that was a stable option um, I do really go back to the whole, there's lots of, lots of um, vacant buildings in the city which are not being used and perhaps that should be something in the meantime while we bridge the gap that could be utilised So we're talking about a grab by government really aren't we because as soon as it goes through a private developer then, then that, that's just another part of the unaffordability. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean perhaps the government should tie in with people like Camelot Properties and reuse vacant buildings and put people in them for a cheaper rent, you know, such as there's a library near where I live which has been used, and I, which is why I'm aware of the whole situation. So they've taken areas of the library and segmented them off and given them as rooms for people to rent for about £50 a week which you know it it appeals to artists and students and people who don't have a lot of money and living in the city but if they redeveloped houses which are not used which of, of which there are quite a lot then perhaps they could put up families and make it you know make it a bit more sustainable the, the issue i think is for a lot of local boroughs is that they look for the for the immediate and easy way out which means that that i mean for instance that scheme is great from what i've seen of it it, it really i think it really works for a lot of people what you'll find i mean say for instance in tower hamlets there are a lot of empty buildings especially old industrial buildings around mm. the sort of whopping area and and limehouse they'll tend to sell them to housing developers who are going to make one and two bedroom flats yeah. uh, and take Sells three years to make yeah, of course and then have yeah. you know 10% of them as social housing or, yeah. or whatever, whatever the percentage is it might not be 10% but it's certainly low but um, so rather than actually develop those those 
those blocks themselves, mm. they tend to sell them on and, you know, that creates its own problems. We've got a lengthy article here on Londonist in the last couple of weeks and it is called Is It Possible to Live in London on Low Income Without Benefits? Snappy title, but it's a, a really great in-depth investigation here from Rachel Holdsworth and it looks at, well, really how much money you've got to have to be able to live in London it's, uh, and various parts of London and it goes hand in hand with another article Why Don't People on Low Incomes All Live in the Cheap Bits of London? Again by Rachel, I really urge you to have a look at these. There's more there than we can digest sensibly here. But really it's a working out of the figures and an understanding of why things ain't working. Um, what, what headline did you take away from this article, fellas? I mean, for a start, the, the whole idea that there's areas to live in London that are cheap. The only areas you can live in London that are cheap are, are, are basically illegal squats and that sort of thing. I mean, even the, the bottom end of, of rent prices, as far out as Zone 6, are actually pretty insane that... Um, you know, we talk about 45% of, of a wage, but actually, in many people's cases, it's, it's much it's, right. it's much higher than that. Yeah. Um, some people don't work full-time, can't get the shift pattern to work full-time, you know. A lot of people sign um, contracts that give them a minimum of zero hours per week, so even if you do 40 hours three weeks of the month you know one of those weeks you might not get those 40 hours and therefore you're not earning the the, the amount that you would you, you imagine me getting from a full-time job so this whole idea that you can just move out and that's and and that's that'll solve everything is it's simply not true the other thing of course is that people i mean as it states in the in the article which i'm glad to see is that if you're a cleaner or if you're doing one of the the minimum wage jobs you can't really travel to work in, in the same way that, that people who work in nine to five full-time jobs do you might not finish till 2 a.m how do you get back to zone six then you know it's, it's not easy and if if you you can't use public transport then of course it's very expensive which means that then you, again you're you're falling into a trap of spending way more money than you would if you were living inside london so we need to be able to afford places to live in and around central london for for key work for the, those sort of workers well, we're seeing the rise of food banks as well, a really disconcerting proportional rise in the number of them and the usage of them. And I, I can't help feeling, am I being doom and gloom if I feel that this is all heading in the wrong direction? It's, it's a shame that we live in a first world country, you know, supposedly one of the richest lands in the world. And, you know, we, we hear about our vulnerable people and the people who need support the most not being provided with it so like you were just saying about um cleaners unable to travel to work I, i've had to travel for work in an, in the early hours about 5 a.m i had to take a bus recently to, t- to travel for work because mm-hmm. it was quite far away and there were so many people of, of exactly sure. that kind of yeah. uh, you could tell they were all going to work and i'd hate to have to do that every day i feel quite privileged that you know i get up at seven and travel to work on my bike and it's pretty easy to get around no problem but you know if I live really far out I wouldn't be able to do my job which you know I think you should provide for those people so that they can do their jobs it's all part of the community and we should look after every sector of our community and they say you judge a nation on um you know the way you look after your vulnerable people and and if we're not doing that what does that say about us yeah which part of town are you from, right? Uh, I live near Elephants and Castle, so it's pretty central, south of the river. It's not the richest area in the world, but I love it, so yeah. Yeah, it's kind of going through some fairly major changes, I think, at the moment, isn't yeah. it? It's really in flux. Where do you see that area going? 
Um, I don't know, but I <laughs> I move there because I like it as it is, so I really hope they don't overdevelop it. If it becomes too gentrified, I might have to move somewhere else because I quite like it just as it is. Well, we should we should say something about what you're doing from your base in Elephant and Castle and indeed around town. I know we've, we've had a bit of uke already, so people will have probably put two and two together, but um, you're involved in the ukulele in surprising ways. <laughs> not in that way, I'm not knowing, but yeah, I teach ukulele i don't know what the <laughs> what you just supposed me to mean um, i'm looking at a, a fantastic flyer here called karaoke yeah. uh, and it was to that which i was referring what is karaoke you had a glint in your eye which suggested you were a, it was a euphemism so i thought i'm gonna pick up on that often use a euphemism that's a new one it's traditionally known yeah george formium it used to make loads of euphemism really? jokes what, yeah, what yeah. sort of thing i, I dare to ask <laughs> Everything was a, a euphemism, absolutely everything. Right. So if you listen to any of his songs, sure. there, there isn't anything that isn't uh, a d- no, double no, no, I'm, I'm, I'm aware that he was very keen on euphemisms, but did he ever use the ukulele itself as a euphemism? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Is that just one, one huge euphemism then? Well, whole... no, no, it's not usually. No, I was just having a laugh, okay. really. So, yeah, no, it's not, not I, normal. I, I, I like the idea, though. I like the idea <laughs> that that was his, his, his big joke was that the whole ukulele thing was a huge euphemism for his uh, his his. his, his creative career <laughs> well I think everything was a euphemism everything was a double entendre have a listen to it and you'll understand but back to karaoke we don't do any George Formby I'm afraid I'm sorry maybe we should we did it once with Frank Skinner because he liked George Formby but mm. generally we do pop covers and stuff from 70s 80s 90s now and yeah basically we play the ukulele and people get up and sing with us now when you say we you're talking about quite an ensemble Yes, there's eight of us ukulele players and a bass player, Sira. So, yeah. I think this is genius. So, you, there's the, the lot of you up on stage there, and then people can come up and uh, sing along with you guys as the, the backers. Exactly that, yeah. So, it's like a better karaoke machine but with people he'll joke with you so if you cock up we'll help you and sing with you and bring you back on track we give you the words we give you backing vocals we play the song it's very silly come along um we're here in the albany uh, on the 21st of june which celebrates um taste of london so come and join us we're normally the third thursday of every month and if you want to look it up uh, it's karaoke.co.uk so k-a-r-a-u-k-e Oh, I was wondering how it would sound if uh, you, we've got the, the backing music mm-hmm. played on the uke would we be able to guess what the songs are so my, my challenge to uh, Sean Preston here <laughs> is uh, to identify the songs from the ukulele backing have you got a couple of songs for us oh here Lorraine God, now I'm shaking I might mess it up if I mess it up then please forgive me so uh, yeah you ready for this Sean absolutely is this a competition or is it just me are you in competition what I'm, I'm fair, I suppose, I suppose we better go head to head here <laughs> we? yeah, yeah I much prefer that here we go the first one. Oh, sorry yeah Clearly, sweet child of mine. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, great. Sweet, a sweet child of mine, uh, guns and, and roses. roses. Yeah. Second one. It's uh, Otis Redding. Brown Eyed Girl oh by God. Van Morrison. Van Morrison. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to. Yeah. <laughs> a, right. a disgrace. Down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> It's not Radiohead, is it? Can't think which one. Oh, 
we, I'm playing the lyrics through, and it's a long way before we get to that. It's a creep. Creep, isn't creep. It? Radiohead, yeah. a very slow version. Of creep. Can we have a Can we have a couple of really difficult ones? All right. What's What's going to stump us? <laughs> uh, two down here. Oh, I'm sorry. What's your tasty music? <laughs> oh no, no, no! I should have got all of those. Oh, you should. Okay, should uh, let's have a look then. Uh, It's uh, the F expletive you, isn't it? Yeah, forget you. <laughs> <laughs> one more, final one. One last one. Oh, let's have a look. Uh, oh, okay. Okay, well, that, I, that's a flavour of what we're all about, I think. That does sound like it'd be a lot of fun, actually. Great. I might <laughs> Come down, sing Forget You with us. Yeah. You can change the word from forget on yeah, the well, night. You can sing it, whenever it, you is want. Is it past the watershed? Definitely past the Great. watershed. Great. There are a couple of F-word songs in our list. Check them out. <laughs> <laughs> and you also, you also teach karaoke, as we uh, <laughs> teach, <laughs> teach ukulele, as we mentioned at the beginning. Um, and you, you reckon you can teach somebody uh, ukulele in one hour? Yeah, 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 I teach. So um, that's before the watershed. So there's no F-word songs in my uh, lessons. I teach in a school uh, in Elephant Castle in the daytime. So we do... Taylor Swift and all those pop songs that they love and then in the night time I teach adults in pubs in groups and yeah we just started a new four week course last night it was really good fun actually so yeah we played the first song in an hour and then we do another couple and it's a four week course so you learn loads of stuff we have a good laugh and a beer that's about it really so we we sent out the shop window here but how how did you end up playing this tiny instrument (laughs) well um, I used to organise areas at festivals and uh, the Ukulele Orchestra of Great Britain came along and uh, really loved them Um, they showed me how to play I was rubbish really rubbish but I was really enthusiastic about it and then because of that all my friends were like show me how to do it and I was like okay that's fine and it became from my hobby it became my job so it's now my job I guess so it's kind of my job but I love it still so yeah it's great and it's one of those really useful instruments because uh, it gets a, a it gets a party going mm. and it, you don't have to cart around a cello or a double bass or a drum kit or something it's nice and portable yeah I literally like. stuck it on my back and came on the bike with a little backpack. So, yeah, if you fancy it, it's uh, learntouk.co.uk. Right, enough shameless promotion from you. Let's move <laughs> on to shameless promotion from uh, Sean Preston, editor of Open Pen Magazine. What's happening with Open Pen Magazine right now? Lots, um, and obviously that's creating lots of work for me, which is great. But, um, yeah, so a few, thing, a few things in the offing for this year. Um, we've obviously got more events this year, and I'm glad to see that the sun shines out, so that means we can hopefully try and do a few outdoor events as well. What are your events like? So I've never been. I'd like um, to come. They, they, you know, like it, they've evolved over time in that initially it was very much just a, a live reading of, of each issue, but, you know, the, a lot more range to it uh, 
helps attract a, a wider audience. Whilst I'm happy to just sit there and listen to people read their stories, uh, not everyone is. So we do a, f- a few different things now. We have um, a, a, com- a comedy section, which is um, still literary in, the, in that it's it's readings of um, some of the more adult submissions we get, and we try and do, uh, read those as hammy as possible. Um, me Lots and uh, double entendre. Oh yeah, like and, and and worse than that, ones that are a lot a lot more see through than uh, than that. Great. But um, we we do that, and we also have a, a, a microfiction competition, which isn't a new thing at all. You know, it's been that's been done before, but it's um, it's it's certainly something that helps encourage writers to come along because you know they also they get a chance to to perform, which is what they want. They get a chance to be heard, and also they get a chance to be published with open pen. Yeah, cause we, we should have the tagline of the magazine. It's very London specific. Uh, London. Which which what are we talking about here? Well, <laughs> you're the well, editor. I've got several now. I've yeah, got. Several. Oh, oh, right. I say. Yeah, yeah. Well, I've got read, write, read, write, submit, which is one, which is uh, in the, in the vein of the obey. Um, uh, we also have London's first open literature magazine, and if that's what you're referring to, the whole open literature thing is exactly what we're about. We're, we're, you know, the obvious, not to say that other magazines or literary establishments are closed off; they're not at all. But um, we're very keen on the more open side of literature, in that in that it's 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 some, it is something for everyone. Yeah, you do you do write to 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 be published, you you write to be read, but also writing is is more than that for a lot of people, and it should be. I think writing is actually a therapeutic process, and um, I'm really trying to sort of push on with that agenda a lot more. You know, recently. Londonist Out Loud is sponsored by Audible. To claim your free audiobook from a range of 16,000 titles, try the Audible service on 30-day free trial. Audiobooks can be saved as MP3s and played on your compatible phone, tablet, or desktop, or burned to a CD. And they're yours to keep. For your free audiobook, go to www.audible.co.uk forward slash Londonist and click through. Back to London, and I know we've more to say about events and Open Pen and Open Pen North, which is an interesting prospect as well. But let's focus a little bit on the the news. And badges are going to loom in the next story, I'm told. Yeah. So recently, uh, there have been a lot of protests because of obviously the awful atrocities in Woolwich. So there's been a lot of um, BNP and fascist protesters, which I personally. Detest, um, but I was very heartened to read that there were more badger protests and anti-badgical protesters than all of the anti, all of these fascists uh, combined. So, brilliant! <laughs> Bring on the badgers! Um, I know particularly there's um, a wonderful organisation called Artful Badger who are at the forefront of this. Uh, amazing protests they dress up in badger costumes and uh, apparently they were chasing away the fascists so uh, i applaud you my friends excellent so yeah i think it's a great story well that ties in with the reason that people want to cull badgers doesn't it because they're supposed to be passing diseases around particularly to livestock i'm presuming therefore that the fascists are, are fearful of contracting one of these uh, terrible illnesses um, <laughs> wh- why, why would that not be a good thing to cull the badgers what's the argument against that uh, well, it doesn't feel like a very London story, by the way. But the protest happened here. But <laughs> why, why, no. should, why should we not be murdering Mr. Brock? Well, I just don't think we should. Uh, look at the artful badger, and they've got a, a full-on, uh, I think, manifesto about this. Um, it's their protest and not mine. But I, I agree. I don't think we should call badgers. I think it's all part of our. Um, natural uh, ecosystem and I think uh, culling of any description is a, is a bad idea. What about if we bring this much closer to home and think about the, uh, the urban fox uh, clearly, I mean to the naked eye not in the best of health 
Uh, we've had more and more incidents of, of foxes going into people's houses and so forth. I mean, I, th- I think sometimes that's uh, sensationalised. But what about the idea of uh, the, the, that exists at the moment of marksmen taking out a few of those to try and keep numbers down for hygiene reasons? Oh, it's difficult, isn't it? I mean, I yeah. I, but at the same time, won't they just naturally die out themselves if they're not in the best of health? Well, not if we keep throwing uh, Kentucky Fried Chicken their way. <laughs> then in which case, shouldn't we look more at waste management than culling the animals themselves? I, for me, I think that's the better way to go. Stop making that chicken so damn tasty. <laughs> <laughs> well, if they're throwing it away, it can't be that tasty. Perhaps they should make it more tasty than we eat all of it in and don't throw it away, I'm not sure. <laughs> not, do, do you have a position on badgers Mr. Uh, yeah I, I do I do and it's it's um it's somewhat at odds with, with a lot of the uh the reaction to this I was I was quite saddened actually I think when I put the television on I did that dangerous thing of turning the news on and uh, there was a thing about badgers and I knew it was also the day of the protests obviously uh, the BMP and I just thought oh no I know what this is going to be and it was obviously reporting that more people turned out to support to support this um, issue with the culling of badgers than, than there were for the BNP or the people that were opposing the BNP. And I just, it, it just, it, it frustrates me so much that that many English people would turn out to to, to back these badgers <laughs> when we've got so many other things going on in our streets to do with human beings that they seemingly don't care about as much. I guess that is a very English thing, in fact, actually, that we're so very keen on animals that we'll do anything for them, but we're not so keen on helping each other. I don't know, though. To be perfectly honest with you, I think most people are anti-fascists. And in the same way that we have apathy in terms of voting, you know, that people just don't really want to get literally involved with a fascist. I, I wouldn't want to go in... I'm anti-fascist, but you wouldn't catch me at an anti-fascist protest because those people look like nutters. And I don't, frankly, want to get face on with a skinhead who has a knuckle duster on his hands personally I'd rather stay out of it there's an argument as well that it just stokes up the fire really if confrontation is what's wanted yeah and I think you know to give those people any airtime is is a bad thing I think to ignore them and to support the badges and to not give them the airtime I'd I'd much rather do that because frankly I, I, I think there's they have no position in our society anyone who supports racism and fascism it clearly needs an education in my opinion I think uh, the reaction from the Muslims who gave away food was inspirational and that shows humanity in itself and I think that's where Muslims usually sit and uh, good on them. Yeah, I think the um, exactly as you say, the, the fallout from the people was, uh, was commendable but um, it, it was certainly a commendable reaction, which uh, certainly more commendable than a lot of the, the, the print media which did its very best to... Uh, to, to 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 flare things exactly yeah. to make the to to encourage the the issues that you know this this these two boys set out to do. Well, let me ask then, with that in mind, what about the vilification of the I'll call them hate preachers, when it, which in itself is maybe inaccurate, but a, a heavily loaded term. Various figures like that on the public consciousness. What about the uh, typically the red tops vilifying them and turning them into uh, demons for public consumption? What, what do you what do you make of all that? Is is there a different way to be going about that? It's a lot of propaganda, isn't it? You yeah. know, and, and, and you know, think think of propaganda in history and learn from it. That's all I have to say, really. Learn I mean, from history. Oh, <laughs> are you kidding? Crazy Are you people. kidding? <laughs> 
Um, yeah, of course, of course it is. But they, they, they do it all the time. Anything that's not con- convenient for, for them, anything that, that, that is far away from the accepted uh, from the accepted truth, then of course they do that. I'm not just not to say that, that you know a lot of these people they're talking about are in, are in the right. I, I personally absolutely disagree with them, as I as you know as I do many extremist opinions. Not all of them. Some extremist opinions I, I feel are quite valid. But um, you know, in this instance, I don't. Of course, I, I don't. I don't agree. But it's the way that we go about treating these people the way we go about it's everything it's the language that we use in our media and obviously I'm, I'm very big on language and how it's used and it, it, it's very plain to see that we, when we talk about these people or if it, you know, it could be Bob Crow or anyone the language that we use it is it's complete, it's, it's, it, we're trying to demonise them we're trying to make them into criminals uh, there's not an obvious link between that and the Conservatives of the Greater London Authority not, not one that I care to make anyway we've got the prospect here of the McNorthern Line sponsoring tube stations to freeze fares so so now this is the idea that individual companies may wish to sponsor various tube stations, tube lines. At the moment, we haven't got it. Well, there's, a, there's the case of Arsenal, which was formerly known as Gillespie Road, so you could sort of say that's a, a renaming of a station. We've got the Emirates Airline, of course, but at the moment we don't have a welcome to Harrods Station on the Piccadilly Line. It's still Knightsbridge and, and so forth. What do you make of this idea? Is this objectionable to you in any way that stations should be renamed after companies? Cool. I think, you know, the thing to remember with these things is that sponsorship, what in many instances is uh, is to the is to the benefit of both parties but in the you know often when it's uh, private sponsorship or something that's public it, it tends to lead in the way of eventual eventual ownership and that might sound ridiculous now to think that one day these stations could be owned by companies but it, it really isn't you know it is it's it, it's not once you've you 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 break that down then that is essentially what will occur in years to come i believe you know it could be that one day the the central part of the the northern line is owned by a couple of shops and then what that then does is it means that other shops can't move into that area and that sort of thing there's lots of there are you know this is all is, it's complete speculation, but the, these are things that that have occurred. If we look again at history um, with with sponsorship, and then later on ownership. But what sort of thing have you got in mind when you say that? Okay, so let's say that Open Pen decides to buy Warren Street Station, and uh, we do have the budget for that, and we're, we're actually in talks at the moment. But um, <laughs> that, you know, there's absolutely no way I would I. I would put as much pressure as possible on on the local council because obviously with ownership of the, of the station we can pretty much do what we want with it. I'd put a lot of pressure on the local council not to allow other literary magazines to come anywhere near Warren Street Station, and that is essentially what 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 probably would you know in my opinion would occur after a time. That is a very persuasive argument. What do you think, Lorraine? Bay? I think it's yeah. I think it is a persuasive argument. Um, they say that this has been done around the world and that they've changed the names of the station. Could it be that we keep the names of the station and then put the logo of the company underneath um, but keep it very separate rather than renaming the stations themselves? Um, I mean, I don't know enough about what the plans are, but they're talking about keeping the, the fares down through sponsorship. And I think you've got to look at how sponsorship generally should be managed correctly and if if it's managed correctly where there's just a logo underneath the existing name then perhaps it would be a bit more sensitive to Londoners and exactly what you say competition in the area 
that seems a little bit of a vague term, though, doesn't it? They, they keep fares down. I've got the, the nasty sense that there's a, a group of shareholders somewhere who are going to be rubbing their hands together while uh, politicians say, oh, well, you've definitely had a bit of a fare, uh, a lack of a fare increase that you would otherwise have had. And, you know, no, nobody can prove anything. The fares will still go up. Yeah. And we'll be uh, thoroughly confused because we'll be going to Boots instead of Caledonian Road or whatever. It's a difficult one because with with um, the underground being redeveloped and also transport in general is is really expensive in London. It's really expensive to upkeep the stations. It's really expensive to replace the trains and to maintain them. I mean, if we look at the the fire at King's Cross, which made them look at the way that we maintain the trains, that's where the, the increases have come. I watched the documentary about the 150 years of London. I was in it actually, um, <laughs> crazily. <laughs> So there you go. And uh, I learned what, what, were you, what were you doing? I was taking photos of the steam train. <laughs> so there you go. Oh, but, uh, it was to do the ukulele. It was oh, disappointing. Sadly, I just, no, I wasn't playing the, I should have done, but I just got to ride the steam train, which was a, a privilege in itself. But, um, yeah, I mean, it's really expensive to upkeep um, transport in London. And if they do, as they say, and put the, the fares, that the, the money that they gaining sponsorship into keeping the fares down for the public then great but if they're just going to rename the stations and then back pocket the profits then that's a bad thing surely well good luck with the warren street privatization very glad to hear that's (laughs) underway Uh, lorraine which station would you like to own um i'd like southwark please (laughs) and westminster but not elephant and castle not elephant and castle traitor <laughs> i want to go on the jubilee line it gets me to where i need to <laughs> elephant and castle that, in a way that is a sort of privatized name i think i, th- I think the story is and i'd happily take a uh, comment on this is that was it elephant castle maybe maybe bought the area or something like that or she paid a certain amount of money and she had the area named after her and then i guess by extension when the tube came about they uh, they, they they named it elephant and Ca- elephant and castle elephant castle mm. we're sure about this <laughs> absolutely not sure of it at all but i, I like the story so i'll go stick it's with it it's a good one because i always there's always questions have you seen the shopping center with the ridiculous elephant with a castle on its back on on there yeah, yeah. it's beautiful it's a beautiful thing yeah. it's not really beautiful no no, no i know i'm down there quite a bit. i work quite close to elephant and castle so I'm, I'm in that shopping center a fair bit it is uh one of the least aesthetically pleasing shopping centers in london i'd say but it, it does have its charm <laughs> so well i'm going to look into that because i didn't know the story of elephant castell that's a very good oh, I, think, I think he's, he's selling us a pup isn't he <laughs> One of those things just entered my head. I think I think that should be true. So I'm, gonna, no, I, I, I'm pretty sure that that is at least close to the truth. Well, the other station it's named after Lee Chester Square, isn't it? It was a huge uh, oil magnate, and I believe. Bloomsbury oh, also. Bloomsbury was named after the family that owned Bloomsbury Square and whatnot. Is that right? No? Yeah, no. Well, I guess actually, Square, when you think about Russell it, Square. Russell Square was an actual guy. There you go. Yeah. Yeah, I suppose they didn't directly pay for the area, but and you think of it that way, most areas are named after someone. So um, you know, yeah, we've, we're already there, we're already privatised. We didn't even know it. Before we get emails about this, uh, <laughs> at least ninety percent of what just passed between us was knowingly missold. Okay, uh, let's go back in time uh, to nineteen hundred. 
so around about dinner time, and we've got a fellow here writing about London in the year 2000. Uh, who wants to take what here? Well, let's, let's have a few predictions from each of you. What did uh, this writer, what's his name? Joseph Darby. Joseph Darby. What did he have to say? What were his predictions, uh, Lorraine? So he wrote on the 17th of February 1900 about how London would look in uh, the year 2000. And here's a little quote for you. The magnitude of the great metropolis was the first thing to strike my observation, being apparently ten times the magnitude I understand, understood it to be when in the flesh. Well, that's kind of vague, isn't it? We, we should say here that he's writing as though he's just visited London. That's why he's doing it in the, in the past tense. It's like a, a sort of a Scrooge-like journey. Sean, what have you got? So there's an interesting thing here that he, he talks about in, in regard to class, actually. I'll just, I'll just read that for you. So as far as I could learn, these ladies regarded the mistress and servant connection pretty much the same as we at the close of the 19th century do slave-owning. Only think, one of them said... An elderly woman I knew in my childhood used to declare it to be sinful to raise the working class above their station by means of education. I think that's you know that's actually quite an, an interesting one to look at because uh, I never really thought about how they thought class would progress that 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 amount of time ago. Um, so it's it's somewhat in a weird way optimistic actually what else have we got Lorraine uh, he's talking about the transport system a uh, vast number of uh, aerial cars overhead most of them hinged together in lengthy trains and drawn swiftly in their sailings by small electric engines it's the cable car well, it's either the cable car or the DLR, or you could even think about... Well, no, it's aerial, isn't it? I was going to say the tube. All alike were sustained in the air by balloons of moderate size. You're right, it is the cable car. The man's a genius. He predicted precisely what was going to happen. Did he use the word Boris at any point? He... No, uh, a little bit further along, it says here, or Boris blips, as we'd probably call them today, if they'd ever been realised. So there you go. What else did he predict back in 1900? Uh, he predicts that Emirates will own the whole of the... No, he doesn't, actually. That's, that's just me. Um, he's, he says, At the banquet halls of restaurants, the buffet receiving the foods and viands by a lift was at one end. The tables leading all down the room therefrom, each of which had an endless band to carry the plates with the foods within easy reach of those seats at the tables. That sounds like heaven. Actually, no, it sounds like... It sounds like... Uh, is it wasabi? <laughs> yes, it does. Yes. Yeah. Okay, yes, with the little coloured dishes. Yeah. No, not wasabi. No, no, wasabi's a dish, isn't Yo it? Yosushi. Yosushi, yeah, sushi. exactly right. There's also a, another independent Japanese place on uh, <laughs> Desuno uh, in Brewer Street. Check it out. Uh, okay, they had one more. Which final, final prediction, yes. His prediction on housing. <laughs> a vast uh, opposition to what we talked about earlier. But London had not only spread itself out in every direction, but developed into great beauty. Instead of streets with buildings all alike, there were vast structures of great architectural beauty into which associated families were domiciled and they were termed associate homes. The, con the, consol sorry, the consolidation of the population gave abundant space between them for gardens and pleasure grounds, causing London suburbs to be more pleasant than the country villages. Oh, oh. <laughs> <laughs> I would uh, argue he's, he's way off the mark there. Yeah, he... Sounds very much like Elephant and Castle well, to me. just like Elephant and Castle. I mean, he didn't predict David Cameron, did he? Just like Elephant and Castle. Bless him. <laughs> I think we've got through Joseph Darby's predictions here, haven't we? Is there one more lurking there, Sean? There is something interesting, obviously, brought up in the article in Londonist, in that he's, at, 
a lot of it is a very optimistic look at well, and you could be forgiven for that because I think when you think of London in a hundred years you think well there certainly won't be any poor there won't be any vagrants but it's exactly what he, he looked at he said that there were basically vagrants are pretty much unknown Gam- gambling was banished from London which is ludicrous when you think that outside of my house I can get to about five within a three minute walk um, drunks are treated as diseased um, which is, has gone some way you know but uh, and all manufacturing and production is controlled by the state, with workers sharing profits along some socialist Marxist lines. Hmm. Not exactly Man's, spot on with that one. Man's a fool. <laughs> yeah. No, he's, he's way off here. Yeah. Uh, we've tried to help him as best we can, but sorry, Joseph. <laughs> you, no. It's almost like, have you seen Back to the Future? Yeah. I really love their prediction of the yeah. future with their floating uh, cars and stuff. Yeah. So, bless him. He was just imagining a paradise for us. Utopia. I was trying to print a document from my phone to my wireless printer, and I had to give up in frustration. I was nearly crying. <laughs> that, that should be happening. Never mind <laughs> flying cars. That, that at least should be happening. Yeah. We've just got time to give another plug to projects that we're doing we should say something about the deal in prospect with people up north yeah i mean there's as i said there's a few things going on obviously we'll still do our events in, in london that sort of thing we're hopefully gonna have something at brooklyn bookshop soon but um what wider than that as far as the print edition goes we're gonna be talking with a few people up north who are interested in in synchronizing it and, and doing a, a north england edition of open pen and essentially then the london edition would become the south england edition to open pen <laughs> to open pen <laughs> Sorry. Well, I, I can say it in my own accent the open pen yeah. there you go <laughs> where are you from you said you're from south south london you're no, a southerner you're I'm, not, I'm from you're south not. london now but i'm from manchester originally so. i don't believe it for a second absolutely from manchester i say glass grass bath oh no i believe you. ukulele <laughs> no hang on that's exactly the same surely <laughs> it is exactly the same <laughs> but you bring us on uh, appropriately to ukulele now you've got a gig uh, coming up on uh, a weekend near us yes uh, friday the 21st of june it's karaoke at the albany but also if you play the ukulele and you want to do that here at the albany every wednesday absolutely free free songbook uh, pdf for everyone who wants to get it it's ukulele wednesdays so if you google search ukulele wednesdays and that's here at the albany every wednesday and you can also look at the albany it's www.thealbanyw1w.co.uk i've got to say it's a fantastic pub i've never been here before really located beautifully close to Great Portland Street tube. I'm just looking through their menu here, and it's making my mouth water. I, it's awful, but the battered black pudding is uh, is kind of a hangover special that they do here. Uh, baked brie as well looks very nice. But apparently, it's their southern fried chicken that you've really got to try with apple slaw and a house pickle dip. Sounds pretty good, doesn't it? I'm all about the bangers and mash, personally. What about you? Oh yeah, I tear through most of it. I mean, look. <laughs> like, 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 in one sitting. Yeah. Oh, honestly, I could, I could. Like, like a host, I think actually the, uh, the 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 battered black pudding would be right up my street. Well, come and give it a try. Uh, both of you, Sean Preston and Lorraine, both thanks very much for being with us here today. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And that's all for this week. My thanks for this week to Sean Preston and Lorraine Bow. Thanks too to Becca Evans and Bernie Barkley. Theme and incidental music was by Jack Hurd and Rory Anderson. I'm N. Quentin Wolfe.
Sympathy 